Hello, and welcome to the new season of the MIT Press Podcast. My name is Chris Gondak, and today I'll be speaking with Richard DeMillo, the author of Abelard to Apple, The Fate of American Colleges and Universities. Richard DeMillo is Distinguished Professor of Computing and Professor of Management, former John P. Imlay Dean of Computing, and Director for the Center for 21st Century Universities at Georgia Institute of Technology. Author of over 100 articles, books, and patents, he has held academic positions at Purdue University, the University of Wisconsin, and the University of Padua. He directed the Computer and Computation Research Division of the National Science Foundation and was Hewlett-Packard's first chief technology officer. Richard Mello, thanks so much for being on the MIT Press podcast today. Good morning, Chris. You know, the University of California and the University of Texas systems are two fairly highly regarded public university systems. But in the last year, California's raised tuition enough to bring on a lot of stu- student protest. And Governor Perry, who's currently running for the public, Republican nomination, uh, has made it quite clear he wants to see major changes in Texas higher education, including a $10,000 college degree. Uh, are these just signs of the new austerity hitting higher education, or are the different forces at work here? Not different forces. Uh, the same economic and political forces that shape other institutions, I think. You know, Tom Friedman uh, is famous for saying that it's a flat world, and universities have been slow to consider how they should work in a world that's been flattened by globalization and technology. Uh, universities, I think, are subject to the same forces as other institutions, but you'd never know it if you spent your time in faculty lounges. Nevertheless, it's it's true. Uh, I think the Texas and California situations are really very different aspects of that. In Texas, you see an agenda like trying to measure the productivity of university faculty in the same way that you would measure factory productivity, which I think is fundamentally uh, a wrong-headed approach. It really misses the mark. In California, you see a systematic attempt to dismantle an investment that's made the state wealthy. California, uh, even today, is the eighth largest economy in the world. Uh, The difference is that in California, the university system took on the challenge of a huge budget reduction to begin the process of re-engineering how they deliver value. I have to say I'm I'm much more skeptical of the Texas approach. Why is $10,000 the right number? Um, Is that what it takes to produce a college graduate? Is that what it takes to impart skills? What's the value of a $10,000 degree? Without looking at value, it just seems like a naked political move. So could you explain a little bit or flesh out that whole idea about uh, measuring the productivity in the academic world as they do in the private sector? Where's, where's the disconnect there? The n- disconnect is that things like productivity uh, are measured in terms of hours spent in the classroom. Those are, those are input measures. And we know that input measures have virtually no effect on the value that's, that's produced, um, uh, even in factories, I, I, I have to say. So uh, you don't know, for example, what the long-term impact is of a professor uh, and a student's uh, success, career, career success. Hours in the classroom may not be the way to measure, measure that, any more than dollars spent per, per student or selectivity is a way to measure that. The, the really opening theme of the book talks about how there's this schism between what the university values and what the student values, and in, in fact that the universities are kind of missing the boat about how student valuations are changing. So from the university's point of view, is it fair to say that they're more kind of a church in, the, in that they see themselves as that we're a university, the values that we espouse are timeless and unchanging, and all the rest of the stuff is just kind of of, I guess you call it noise within the historical process, and we know we're right. Or is it more kind of like Congress? It's like people know that there's change needed. It's not that what they're doing is going to be good forever, but there are entrenched political forces which make it really hard to change, even though there's an awareness that things have to be different. Well, this is really a very, very old argument. Uh, you can go back to 
people like John Henry Newman in the 1850s, the guy who founded the, the oldest and largest university in, uh, in Ireland uh, and was a leading philosopher and, um, uh, and literary figure of, of his day. Um, and, and he was famous for saying that, that um, a university that's been doing useless things for a long time at first finds it degrading to be useful. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's sort of the dialectic that you find in, uh, in universities throughout, throughout history. Uh, today, there are, there are people, I think mainly in the humanities, unfortunately, who argue that it degrades the value of a liberal arts education to have to talk about its value. Um, they would argue that it's the cultivation of the intellect that defines value and that nothing more needs to be said. So I'm the product of a liberal arts education, and that's what I heard throughout my undergraduate years. Uh, the problem with that is that uh, today, um, there's a price tag that's attacked, uh, attached to that liberal arts uh, diploma. You know, student debt is rising to unsustainable levels, uh, and at some point, uh, we in academia start to look like Henry Hill. Uh, we're you know, selling shiny band uniforms and trombones to the rubes uh, in River City uh, if we don't start explaining why a family should go a quarter of a million dollars in debt to play in Henry Hill's uh, band. And, and, and that's, that's the fundamental, uh, fundamental problem that we're, that we're facing. Um, now, the change question that you, that you mentioned is really an interesting one. Universities do change. Sometimes they change rapidly. Uh, when the medieval European universities became viewed as uh, what was called in the, in the day the ossified keepers of outmoded knowledge, um, at the end of the Renaissance, the Jesuits swept in uh, in southern Europe with a new way of doing business and set up a global network of universities that challenged the, the existing uh, academic order. And you know, that's a story that's repeated throughout, throughout history. In the U.S., uh, colonial universities were the poor cousins of Oxford and Cambridge until after the Civil War. And then we as a nation began to question the value of a classical European education. And what was the result of that? thousands of experiments. Um, many of the new colleges um, that, um, that were invented in the late 19th century were doomed to fail, um, but that was a wave of innovation. We got, we got Williams, we got Johns Hopkins, we got Mills, uh, Harvard uh, innovated, uh, we got the land-grant colleges. You know, the, 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 the pace of change uh, in the late 19th century uh, was really, really staggering. And then at the start of the 20th century, we got a new wave of innovation. And now we're sitting uh, at the beginning of a, of a new century uh, and looking back 100 years and saying, so what's happened uh, to American universities over the last, over the last century? And it, it's interesting because it was almost exactly 100 years ago that the first rankings of universities was, um, was published. And the, the most striking thing to me in looking at the rankings from, uh, from 1910 um, was that it was an equal mix of public and private universities. Public universities were small, they were wealthy, uh, they were successful. Today you look at reputational rankings of universities, not a single public university is in the top 20. So what's happened? You know, I, I contend that uh, experimentation stops. So it, it's, really, it's really not that change is resisted, it's that the great experiments have stopped in the U.S. They've stopped as far as public universities, but I, you know, I graduated in 1990, and although there certainly were for-profit colleges back then, I mean, you could get on television and you'd see commercials for ITT Tech. I mean, now, thinking the 21st century, 
there are a lot more for-profit colleges, and it seems that with technology, particularly the internet, they're able to m- make that cost delivery to the student. Getting back to the question of student value, they, I mean, because you do divide the uh, university system, higher education in America, between the elites, the middle, and then what we'll call the for-profits. And I use the University of Phoenix just as an example because they're definitely the biggest, but there are other ones. These that that group in the middle, there's still envy of them of the elites. But is there a backwards looking? Do they realize exactly what's happening? to the for-profit colleges eating away would have been their student base, say, 20 years ago. No, and, and this is really one of the, one of the critical factors that I, I talk about in the, in the book when we look forward to what's going to happen over the next, the next century. Whether or not the, the existing for-profit universities succeed or their model is, is, is adopted, it's pretty clear that, that they have a handle on value that somehow balances uh, the cost of delivery with the attractiveness of programs to to potential students. And the danger is that that the existing universities, particularly the ones in the middle that don't feel that they have the freedom to create their own agenda, will look at that and say, well, that's much lower quality than than we are. it's it's not a legitimate uh, institution uh, and ignore those those forces. So in in your first question, for example, I said that in faculty lounges, you you would not get a sense that there's anything going on um, uh, globally in uh, in in technology. That's one of the ways that it shows up in in university university thinking. Uh, there's a there's a tendency, for example, to value uh, an imagined classroom experience um, much more than an imagined. Uh, online experience. And of course, the imagination is always that the classroom experience is a warm, um, wonderful, um, uh, nurturing experience, and the, and the online experience is cold and, and, and dispassionate, uh, which is, is untrue as often as it's true. Um, MIT has all of its courses online and available. And I have taken a couple of the Open Yale courses, uh, and they're pretty interesting. And I like them a lot. I mean, you certainly can't get graded from Yale, but you can pick up a lot. Can you see a day when a university, and I pick MIT and Yale just because they're the two that came to mind, but I know there are other universities who are doing this, and I don't want to limit it to those elite schools like Yale and MIT. But can you see a day when a university decides to completely give up any kind of physical plant? And I guess by by a university who has a physical plant at this time and just move to internet-only system of classroom delivery? I, I think there will be some that, that do that. Um, what you see really going on today are, are, are hybrids and, and federations of universities that are uh, pooling resources for, for online, online delivery. The, the research on this is very, very young, but all indications are that students learn best um, when they're presented with with a mix of, of online and in-person in-person instruction. The real question is uh, where is the value of the in-person instruction? We just have a real strong uh, feeling uh, in in traditional US institutions that sitting in a darkened classroom uh, and and you know watching a professor uh, 50 yards away, um, on a stage is is the way to deliver information, and there's really no reason to to believe that. The you know if, if you if you look at at the title of my of my book, it talks about Abelard uh, and and Apple, and and Apple is the metaphor for for the 21st century. It's the metaphor for online delivery. It's the it's the metaphor for for scalability. 
who was Abelard? Peter Abelard um, was, in addition to being to being you know the person who was involved in this famous love affair with with Heloise, was really the first professor um, in in Europe. He was a charismatic figure that drew students by the thousands because he would engage them in dialectics. He would engage them in controversial controversial topics. That's a two way two way street, and and you don't get that in a sage on a stage classroom. You really need to have one on one interaction. So when I look at a bricks and mortar institution, I'm not imagining a darkened English 101 classroom filled with 300 students. What I'm imagining is much more like what in the 21st century will be the the replacement for the one-on-one interaction with um, with with students. And that may be a combination of online delivery, uh, a, a really sophisticated way of having a single professor uh, and and his or her assistants reach many students. And most importantly, and I think this is really one of the innovations in the last 10 years, uh, the rise of, of social networks. So we know that peer communities are very, very important. When Chuck Vest invented the idea of open courseware, he was very clear to say the material that we're putting on the internet is not an MIT education. An MIT education consists of the learning community in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We're now in a position when when we can spread through social networking, learning communities on a global scale, uh, and and that is really a way to bring in um, um, uh, peers, tutoring, mentoring um, at a scale that that you can't do in a bricks and mortar mortar institution. Uh, and um, I, I think at some point you have to talk about cost. Um, what is the value of a bricks and mortar institution when all of the cost is going towards fancy football stadiums? And uh, and dormitories, uh, you know, that is is value that really doesn't end up in the in the classroom, uh, and 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 that seems to be the direction that that American institutions have been pushing for the last generation. From the MIT courseware, that, that I get a sense they've been surprised by the number of self-organized learning communities that have been asking them for more work. Didn't you say that there's, there are groups in Africa that are going through the MIT coursework and, and sending requests back for more information for what, what, what did I miss from this lecture? I, I have a, a colleague who, who started a website called Open, Open Study, and he actually spun off a company um, called uh, OpenStudy.com that tries to organize on a global scale these learning communities. So if you're taking the introductory uh, algebra course uh, from, um, from iTunes U, uh, you can go on Open Study and find all of the students in the world that are taking those, that, that course at the, at the same time. And once you engage in that community, what do you find? You, f- you find the professor there, certainly, um, but most importantly, you find a peer group. So you find people that are at, at different levels um, of learning the material. Uh, you find, like in any other social network, people that have assumed positions of responsibility. In a sense, social capital is created and passed back and forth in these online communities in ways that you really can't duplicate in a bricks-and-mortar institution. And we're just at the beginning stages of this kind of, of revolution. I think it's going to be very interesting over the next 10 years to see how this plays out. Rich DeMello, the author of Abelard to Apple, The Fate of American Colleges and Universities. Thanks so much for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. Thank you, Chris. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget the MIT Press is on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash mitpress. Or you can follow us on Twitter, where we are at MIT Press. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2011, the MIT Press. All rights reserved.